Acts chapter 9, sentences 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, for you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road to which you came to me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, it is great to be with you today. My name is Jacob, if I haven't met you before. Um, and yeah, looking forward to getting into this next uh, chapter in the book of Acts. It's been really encouraging walking through the account of the early church and its growth and, and keen to get into this story right now. But before we start, how about we just pray that God would be um, speaking to us that this next um, 30 minutes or so wouldn't just be idle time, but it would be um, an opportunity for each of us to be reminded or even to hear for the first time of the goodness of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we come to your word and as we reflect on, uh, on this account uh, of the conversion of Saul, just that you would be uh, enabling us to actually get a sense of just how big a thing this is, that you would, be, you would come and you would present yourself to someone, even someone as sinful as Saul, and show mercy. And we just pray that we would have a sense of your mercy today and in this time in your word, we would be able to listen and be attentive to what you have to say to us. Amen. Um, yeah, it's great to be getting into this conversion story. The story that Jez just read to us is almost definitely the most well-known conversion story in the Bible and probably the most well-known conversion story there is. And, uh, and Christians love a good conversion story. Um, it, it's, it's probably the case if you are a Christian and you've been around groups of Christians, at some point you've been around and people have gone around and shared, I guess, just how it is that they came to uh, a, the place of having a faith in Jesus. And like we know there's no kind of hierarchy in terms of people's stories, but every now and then you have the experience where you know, someone will share and they'll say, look, I grew up in a, you know, my parents are Christians and 
lived in a Christian home, and then one day I just decided to make the faith my own. And the next person will say, oh, look, you know, I didn't go to church growing up, but I was always pretty spiritual and open-minded. And, and, you know, one day a friend invited me to church, and it just clicked, and I believed. And then you'll turn to the next person who's got tattoos all over their face, and they'll say, look, I started taking drugs when I was two. I was dealing them by seven and running a cartel at 15. I went to jail for life, 100 years, no parole. That's where I got my nickname Stabby because, you know, you know how it is. I just couldn't help stabbing all the time. And one day, I was stabbing this guy just casually, and I didn't realize it, but he was the chaplain. And when I put the knife in, it, it got stuck, and I realized there was a Bible blocking it from going in. So I pulled it out, and I tried to flick it open. And just there on the page that it opened to, there was a, a highlighted verse where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. And just in that moment, it clicked for me that just as I had pierced this Bible and it had saved the chaplain, so too Jesus was pierced on behalf of me, and my eyes were opened. And he prayed for me, led me to Christ. And over the next two months, I led the entire prison to Christ, even the warden. And as a way of saying thanks, he let me out early, and now I've started an orphanage, and here I am. And everyone... And everyone's thinking, like, uh, like, you shouldn't be, like, bitter at that story, but that's, like, a really good story, and, and mine's not so good. But, um, but here's the case when you hear, like, you know, maybe not as ridiculous as that, but when you hear a conversion story that is, is radical of someone who has had their life completely turned around in a way that you just wouldn't normally expect, it can be, it can be encouraging because it taps into our understanding that normally people don't just change. Normally, um, people, if they're on a, a certain trajectory, going a certain way, they don't just do an about-face for no reason. And what it points to, and what we're going to be seeing in, in this account, particularly of Saul slash Paul, is that, that this points us to the power of the gospel. It points us um, not to look at, at, at Saul or anything he did, but just how amazing Jesus is and just what an effect it can have on someone to meet him. And so the point of this as we walk through isn't to say, like, unless you've got a story that's kind of as outlandish or as crazy as Saul's, that, you know, somehow it's inferior, but it's to point us to Jesus and the power of his gospel and his reality and his mercy to change lives. And so today we're just going to be walking through that account that Jez just read for us, and it's really just got three sec- sections, pretty straightforward. We're looking at who Saul was before, we're looking at the encounter with Jesus that Saul had, and then we're looking at who Saul was after. So, to get us started, we first see in this account um, a description of who Saul was and what he was like. And just as a bit of, just to save me saying Saul, Paul a bunch of times, Saul in this account and Paul, who's the author of most of the New Testament and known as Paul for the rest of the book of Acts, it's not that he kind of changed his name, that he was Saul and he became a Christian. He thought, you know, to signify this, I'll just change a letter for some reason. The reason what's going on here is that Saul was his Hebrew name. He was a Jewish person uh, living in, in Jerusalem and would go by his Jewish name, Saul. But when abroad or traveling throughout the Roman Empire, he would use the Latinized version of his name, which was Paul. So that's what's going on there. But in this story, he's Saul. I might call him Paul. Slip of the tongue, two names, one guy. And up until this point in Acts, we haven't really seen much of Saul. We got introduced to him very, very briefly a couple of weeks back, uh, a couple of chapters back, when we were looking at the story of Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church, someone who was known for preaching the gospel and also helping those in need in his community, who was arrested, trialed, and ultimately murdered by a mob of people who killed him by throwing stones at him. 
And very briefly, at the end of that account, it simply says that Saul was there watching over this crowd. That it was Saul was the one who was supervising this mob. Saul was the one who was, I guess, overseeing the violent persecution against the church. And as we get into this, we kind of build upon that impression that he's not much of a good guy. Look at the first two verses of chapter 9 that Jez read, where it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We get a two-sentence snapshot of, of what Paul was on about before meeting Jesus. And it shows us a couple of things about him, both of which make him out to be an extremely unlikely convert, both in terms of his character or his temperament, but also in terms of his ideology. And the first thing that's clear is that he's got a, a murderous, violent temperament. Elsewhere in some of his letters, Paul refers to his pre-Christian days as him being a violent man. By nature, he had an aggressive streak. And it wasn't your inner west, like passive aggression, which is everywhere around. It's just your old-fashioned, solve conflict with a knuckle sandwich kind of aggression. He's the kind of guy who can stomach watching people be stoned to death. He's the kind of guy that can justify internally tearing families apart from each other and, and dragging off even women in chains to Jerusalem. It says threats came from him as naturally as breathing. So whatever his temperament, his character, whatever you want to call it, his personality, it couldn't be more unchristlike. Jesus was known as being radically nonviolent. He taught when you're struck, don't strike back, turn the other cheek. When met with hatred, respond in loving your enemies. That's what Jesus was on about. So Saul couldn't be more of a polar opposite person to Jesus. So that makes him an unlikely person to kind of switch to be a Jesus follower. But not only is his temperament quite unchristlike, also his ideology is directly opposed to the teachings of Jesus. His violence isn't just indiscriminately poured out to the people around him, but it's directed towards those described as belonging to the way which sounds very like Mandalorian uh, in our day and age, but, but in the early days, Christianity wasn't known as Christianity. The shorthand for it was the way. Jesus spoke of himself as the way. His followers were commanded to choose the narrow way that leads to life. And this just developed into a bit of a shorthand to describe those who had signed on as followers to the Jesus movement. And they held to, these early Christians, these members of the way, a set of beliefs that Saul was vehemently opposed to. Saul had been raised as a Pharisee. He had this Pharisaic mindset which believed at its core that God would never enter this world as a person. That God, who is, who is holy, who is other, wouldn't stoop so low as to join the ranks of humanity which is lowly and sinful and flawed. So this worldview of the Christians wasn't just preposterous or outlandish. It was actually offensive because what it said at its core was that God became a man. And not just any man. It's saying that, that God became this homeless nobody Nazarene who spent his years romping around Galilee with a misfit crew of tax collectors, fishermen and prostitutes and ends his career with getting hung up on a dirty cross. And so in Saul's eyes, the people who are promoting that narrative and saying that that is what God is like, 
That is a threat to the entire Jewish system. It's offensive. It's blasphemous in his eyes. And so from his perspective, this movement needs to be stopped at any means necessary. That Christianity is like a plague going out. So he's not a person you describe as being open-minded. His mind is made up. Christianity is evil and it must be stopped. So if you put together this, this violent kind of streak in his life and this ideology that he's, he's bought into completely, you, you get a picture of a man who is not likely just to change sides. It's not that he's an, an ideal candidate for Jesus to present himself to. He's not low-hanging fruit. But Jesus shows up despite how unlikely Saul is. And he changes him through an encounter. We see that from verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What Saul experiences here is something clearly unique, something, um, something incredible. But I want to sum up what, what he's experiencing here in terms of what changes him as both the reality and the mercy of God. The first thing that hits him is that reality is completely different to what he thought it was. He's going about his business. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He's got the warrant in hand. He's got a plan ahead of him. When out of the blue, he hears a voice from heaven, sees a bright light, does what you do when you get a bright light from heaven. He falls to the ground and he hears this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this would have come as, as a shock to Saul, not simply because it's a, you know, a, a disembodied voice, which would be shocking at the best of times, but specifically for him, he's hearing this divine voice. And the voice is addressing him, not saying, Saul, great work, keep up the good, you know, the good effort that you're doing. This divine voice that Saul must know is something godlike says, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul says, who are you? And the voice says, Jesus. Now at that moment, Saul's entire worldview must have come crumbling down before his eyes. As it dawned on him, as he did the maths in his head and realized the implications of this simple statement, that Jesus was not dead in a tomb, but speaking to him from heaven, which would mean that he has been wrong about everything up until this point. The Christians that he is persecuting are in the right, and he's in the wrong. Stephen, this guy that he killed, was actually right, that he's made a grave mistake, that he's been putting all of his energy and effort into opposing the real and living God. Can you just imagine how destabilizing that would have been? That his entire career to that point, his ambition, his pursuits, his realizing are worthless. It dawns on him that he's been living a lie. And it also just dawns on him that he's got something to answer for. That he's in, in grave trouble. It's a complete and utter shift of reality. That's what happens at, at, at a conversion. It's realizing that everything you thought was one way is actually something else. One of the most enjoyable shows I've been watching this year was Jury Duty. Has people seen, anyone seen Jury Duty? Did the rounds. It's pretty funny. If you haven't seen it, it's basically a real-life Truman show where they got all this huge budget to set up a fake courtroom and 
jury. And there's one guy who they managed to convince was part of a documentary about a real court case, surrounded by other real people like himself and a real judge. But it turns out that every single person that this guy encountered for three whole weeks, where he was living, where he was staying in the courtroom, was fake. And every circumstance he encountered was scripted. And the best part of the show is the very end when they do the reveal and they tell him, hey, just so you know, none of this has been real. It's, it's like a joke, basically. And he doesn't say anything. He just, it just takes him a good few seconds to, just, to, to figure out and to readjust his entire experience in light of this new information. It's, it's uncomfortable because it's kind of like his whole life has been broken open. He's kind of vulnerable, he's exposed... Some might say it's a cruel show, maybe it is. But, but realizing that everything you thought was true is not true shakes you to the core of your being. I don't know if you've had that experience if you're someone who's become a Christian where, where that initial realization has just kind of thrown your life in that moment in, into disarray where you thought, well, what matters? What have I been doing? What is life all about? When you're confronted by this new reality, by the reality that that God is in fact real and knowable and holy and actually would hold you to account. And that we've aggrieved this holy God, maybe not as a murderer of Christians, but maybe in some other way, maybe simply in realizing that our previous view of God was lacking or, or constructed by us in some other way. Or simply that we'd been denying him altogether. Or that we hadn't recognized the magnitude of what it means that he is alive. Or that we've been worshipping other things other than him or that we've failed to love those who are made in his image and for Saul this realization of this new reality undoes him if you read on in verses 7 to 9 the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's supernaturally blinded, which must be in and of itself absolutely terrifying. But just this whole thing that he's been through just leaves him in a place he can't even bring himself to eat or drink. You can just picture him just curled up in a room trying to process what is going on. But then what you see in this story is that it's not simply encountering the reality that God is there and that he has wronged him that changes Saul, but it's encountering his mercy. Because if you didn't know how this story ended, how would you think that this might end? So you've got Saul going about his business, trying to violently dismantle and destroy the church. He hates the Jesus movement. Jesus shows up and blinds him, rebukes him. And then what? What would, we, what would you expect to happen? Maybe that he leaves him, this blind, nervous wreck, curled up in a ball for the rest of his days, leaving him incapacitated to further harm the church. Maybe to let him to, to starve to death then and there. How would you expect it to end? What would Jesus do with this person who has been persecuted him? But what you see in the story is that he shows mercy. In the next part of the story, God calls this man Ananias, who's a disciple, and he tells him to go to Saul, restore his sight, and, and, and tell him he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a conflicting thing for Ananias to do because he knows who Saul is. He probably doesn't like him. He probably doesn't even kind of think it's a plausible thing that, that Saul won't if he goes to him and then arrest him and put him in prison. But Ananias, at his core, believes the gospel 
that even the most sinful people can be saved and redeemed. So he goes. And verse 17 picks up the story. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. His sight is restored. He receives mercy. This former enemy, this person he wanted to kill, puts his hands on him and calls him brother. He's baptized, this symbolic reenacting of Jesus' burial in the ground and, ri and rising to new life. And he's restored. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel, is that it doesn't just crush you with the reality of your own brokenness and God's disapproval of you, leaving you a groveling mess to pick yourself up at the end of it. But no, it restores. It doesn't say you, you're worthless, rotten, and you'll get what you deserve. It says you've, you've acted in ignorance, you've, you've done wrong, but mercy is there, that you can receive the Spirit. You can be baptized. You can have new life. And it's this encounter with mercy that is truly life-changing for Saul. I want to show you from another part of the Bible. In, in, this is written sometime, maybe even decades, after, after Saul's conversion, where he's writing to his new apprentice, Timothy. And he reflects on this experience that had happened all these years prior. And this is what he says about this experience. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. These are some rich verses. I just want to point out something from this, what Paul's reflecting about himself. There, there are two things he says twice in, in those verses. Firstly, he says twice that he was shown mercy. Verse 13, verse 15, he says that he was shown mercy. That he's identifying what happened as a divine act of mercy, that he deserved something and he got something else. But the other thing that he says twice is that he refers to himself as the worst of sinners. Verse 15, of whom I'm the worst. Verse 16, the worst of sinners. So what's he doing here? Because I don't think he's necessarily making this kind of theological statement that he saw 2,000 years ago was the worst person that has ever lived before or since. The ultimate, you know, someone's in the world's got to be the worst, and it turns out it was him. But that's not what he's doing. What he's saying is he's answering the question, why did he get chosen? Of all the people in the world, Jesus could have chosen to appear to and send, you know, and as we know of, Saul's story ends up planting these churches around, around um, the Mediterranean and, and growing the church. Why him of all people? Well, he says it's because he was the worst 
That's why he was shown mercy, so that in his story it might display the immense patience of Christ as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So to paraphrase that, what he's saying is that God chose to publicly save Saul of all people, someone who most of us can look to and say, he's worse than me, so that in his story it might show just how patient and merciful Jesus is. So that we would know there is no one who is beyond the patience and mercy of God. Because if he had chosen some really good, kind of upright, Christianish person who's not really a Christian to go and be this kind of lit, you know, apostle to the Gentiles, then anyone could say, well, yeah, that's like a him thing. That, that, that makes complete sense. But he does this with Saul so that we might know that no one is outside of the mercy of God. To make us realize that, that it is possible for us too to experience what he has experienced. I see this dynamic at play in my own life when it, when it comes to getting fit. I've never been like a gym junkie or like a fit... I don't need to tell you this. You can look at me. Um, I was trying to like trim some words out of my sermon. I could have trimmed that sentence out pretty easily. Um, and so every now and then, you know, I'll have a friend who's like, you know, they're ripped and they go to the gym all the time and they're fit. And I'll say, hey, come along. It's easy. Like you just go to the gym all the time and work out. And I don't even have to consider that, that invitation because I can just say in my head, look, that's, that's, that's for people like you. That's a you type of thing. I'm a McDonald's type of guy. Like, that's, that's what's going on. But recently, I've got a friend who I've been friends with for many years, and I'll be honest, I would view him as less healthy than me. So, like, on, on the kind of scale. And over this year, he started getting really healthy. He's exercising, like, every day, going to the gym. He's looking like a whole other person. And he's been saying to me over these last few weeks, hey, come, come with me. I'm, like, come to the gym. We'll, we'll work out together. And that excuse that I've used for my entire life of that's just not the kind of person I am, it falls down because it's not the kind of person he was either and yet somehow he's found a way. I actually think that's what, what Paul, Saul, is getting at in, in, in his letter to Timothy. What he's trying to say is whatever excuse someone might have built up for themselves of saying this is why I could never be a follower of Jesus. This is why I could never receive mercy because I know the type, there's a certain type that become Christians, I'm not one of them, is to say no. That even if Saul, this violent, angry, ideologically set person, can come into the way of Jesus, so too can anyone. There is no such thing as being too closed-minded. There is no such thing as being too sinful. There is no such thing as being too broken. That anyone can. I wonder, have you written off anyone else in your mind as being someone who could never believe. Someone who could never be a Christian. Could Paul have believed? Well, not on his own. Like, that's the point, right? He, he couldn't. He couldn't have been a person who would just start following Jesus out of the blue. But when he encounters Jesus, when Jesus shows up in his life, it's not about what the person is like, it's about what Jesus is like. When Jesus shows up, anyone's life can be upended. So don't just be like, thinking of and, and aware and praying for people in your life that you feel like are kind of just almost there in terms of coming to a faith in Jesus. Just kind of just close to the line. But just remember the reality that the most ardent atheist, the most 
the person that's embraced any, any worldview that you might think puts them far away from Jesus, any single person is just one encounter with Jesus through a conversation, through something that they read, through something deep down getting brought up, even through just something they've realized, something happening in life or a dream. Everywhere, every single person is one encounter with Jesus away from being permanently changed by the God of the universe. But here's another question. Have you ridden yourself off? Are you here for some reason because you're with someone who asked you to come or I don't know, I don't know why you might be here, but are you here but you feel deep down like it's never really going to be me that's kind of on about this stuff. It's never going to be me that can feel like God is there and, and, and close and loving me. Maybe you feel that you're too far gone or too far down the road of sin or you know it's just too much baggage, whatever it's going to be. What Saul would have you know is that no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. God meets Saul where he's at. He doesn't wait for him to clean himself up. He doesn't wait for him to turn around of his own steam. God encounters him. And that changes him. And then we see this picture of what Saul is like after. He's radically changed. We see in, 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 the, in the verses even beyond what Jesus just read that he goes from being someone who is distant from God to being someone who's just committed to prayer for days on end. He goes from being the persecutor, the one who's causing suffering around him, to actually experiencing suffering himself and being persecuted. As soon as he starts preaching the gospel of Jesus, the Jews turn their, their frustration and anger towards him and try to arrest and kill him. He barely escapes. And he goes from trying to destroy the church and break it down to actually trying to build it up. And, and from breaking the community apart, he ends up wanting to join it. Look at the end of just this, this section. Um, this bit wasn't read before, but from verse 26 it says, When he had come to Jerusalem, Saul, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church through all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's a completely different person. Trying to, trying to, to fellowship with and... and and, and spread this, this news of love and of hope and of peace instead of trying to bring about destruction and death and pain. What else has the power to take someone like this from, from being a killer, angry, closed-off person concerned with their own advancement and their power and their control to being someone who is compassionate and others-focused and community-minded? But the gospel, it's a complete metamorphosis. It's as radically different as a... A caterpillar going into a cocoon coming out as a butterfly. It's, it's, it's this beautiful picture. And it's beautiful because conversion doesn't just change people, it changes people for the better. And that's true of every conversion, no matter what the story is, even if it's not as like outwardly kind of flashy as Saul's, even if it's just, by the world standards, unremarkable, whether it's a kid out there in City Kids this morning just realizing the gravity of God loving them. Or someone sitting in church after three years of just coming in week in, week out, realizing that they can just have peace from trying to earn God's favor and understanding that he is a God of love. 
and we're changed. And I think when you can like hear conversion stories, you know, particularly like ones that feel really impressive, the focus can really be what happens in that moment of conversion. And we can feel discouraged if we don't have that kind of moment or that clear line in the sand or that point where we gave our life to Jesus or whatever the language you want to use for it. But, but maybe the focus actually needs to be in appreciating the, the miracle and the beauty of conversion, not necessarily what happens in the moment, but what that produces in the years to come. Because the beauty of Saul's story isn't just really what happens on this road to Damascus. The beauty of it is what happens in the years and years beyond that as he spreads the church, as he, as he grows, grows the church and as he spreads the gospel. And so I wonder for ourselves, in terms of looking to the validity of our faith or reflecting on God's grace towards us, maybe it's not a matter of just analyzing what happened when we were converted, but analyzing and, and reflecting on what change has been brought about in our lives? Because I would say that not having this big, clear, outwardly flashy conversion isn't a reason to doubt your faith. But not having a changed life is one. And that could come really as, a, and as an encouragement or a warning. And I'm hoping for most people that's actually an encouragement. As you look at your life and reflect that you can see the evidences of God's grace in bringing about a multitude of genuine changes for the better in your life. And that can be like that could be a really easy thing to do if you've become a Christian in the last couple of years. It might actually be a little bit hard to do if you've been a Christian for a long time to really notice what the changes are. And I've found it a really helpful thing a few times in my life as a Christian to actually sit down and through prayer or even through writing, reflecting on on how I'm different because of the gospel. Because I don't normally feel like my life is very spectacular. I don't feel very saint-like or especially holy. But when I actually do stop and I reflect back on my pre-Christian years, which I grew up in a Christian home, even my pre-Christian years felt in some ways a bit Christian-y. But if I look at the trajectory of how that things would have played out in terms of where my values, my ambitions, and my unrefined personality were heading... It takes me somewhere very different to where I am now, that even what feels kind of often very mediocre in me suddenly seems miraculous. How, how many of the worst parts of me have been sanded back by, by God's grace? How many things that were almost dormant that are good in me have been brought to life by the power of the gospel? That I've been changed, that I'm not the person I otherwise would have been. And my hope for you would be that if you do the same sort of analysis on your, on your own life, that you would see the same reality that you are not the person you would have been but for the grace of God. And to be grateful for that. And to be encouraged by that. Unless, upon reflection, there is no change. And that would be the warning for some. And, and like, hear me, I reckon for, for most people in this room, I, I want this to be encouragement. I don't think church should be a place you come just to feel like your faith's not real every single week. Where you just feel like, you know, um, doubting. But the reason I have to do this, this warning is because there is the possibility for some of you that you may not have had an encounter with God where you've recognized what it means that there is a God who is real and who is there and who is holy and that you've been broken open with remorse and guilt and an awareness of your own failing and a holy fear. And then without that, that you haven't appreciated or seen or experienced the fact that you've not been given what you deserve, but you've instead received mercy. That God poured out the punishment due you onto Jesus instead. 
And because you haven't experienced that, you haven't had your life changed, certainly not from the inside out, because going to church can change some stuff in the peripherals of your life. Trying to maintain an identity as a Christian to appease your family can change some external stuff, but it doesn't change you from the inside out. The only thing that can change you from the inside out is a real encounter with the reality of God and the mercy of God. And without that, without having that, why would your life be any different? Have you, to use the word that they use in Acts, been converted? Have you been taken off one road and put on another? Have you been changed from being one person to being another person? And if you think the answer to that is maybe not or no, then I encourage you to heed this story. That as Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom he was the worst as an example for us who might believe in him and have eternal life. If you've not turned to Jesus, if you've not encountered God, if you've not received mercy, you can. You are not beyond the reach of it. It's there. It's available. Forgiveness is is there for you to grab hold of. And if you've not turned to Jesus, you could do that today. Maybe that's because it's been for you a building, gradual realization that God is in fact there. And you're not even really sure when you started kind of believing that. But you do know you haven't been living for him, but you just haven't had that moment to kind of say, you know what, I'm in. I understand this. I, I accept this love that he has offered. Or maybe you've been coming along for church for literally years. And it's hit you as of late that you know a lot of Bible, but you don't know a lot of mercy. We want to even give you a chance today to, to come and receive prayer so that you can be prayed over and that you might know for sure that you are embraced by that mercy. Maybe you know that you need to change, but you're feeling powerless to do that. And you actually need the Holy Spirit's help to actually come into your life and bring about some deep change within you. If any of those in any way describe you, we want to actually be praying for you today. And so what we're going to do is just a little bit different to how we normally kind of finish the service week in, week out here. We're going to, in a minute, be going into a time of worship and reflection. And a few things are going to happen in that time. In a minute, uh, or even now, I think, actually, the band's going to come up. And in, in, in a moment, um, Annie's just going to sing a song. And that's just going to give us a time to reflect to reflect on the mercy that we've been shown, to, to, to spend time with God, to pray, to ponder on ourselves, to ask for forgiveness if that's something we need to do. And it's also just going to give us time throughout that one song to go to the back of the room and if you'd like to, to grab some juice and some bread or some gluten-free bread and to come back to your seat. Um, because after that item, Jez is going to lead us through communion, which is a chance to symbolically with bread and juice remind ourselves of the reality that Jesus died for us. So that's going to happen in a minute. Then after that, after we take communion, we're going to sing two more songs together. And during that time, there's going to be four people or so out the back of the room that if during those songs you just want someone to pray for you, you can just go and say, I just want prayer. You don't have to say what's going on. Or you might go and say, I want prayer for this and, and let that person know what is happening in your life or what you're feeling or what is going on. But we want to have you know that there is, a, there is the opportunity to respond today. That this forgiveness is not something you've got to kind of go off far away and find, but it is there, it is at hand. So right now, though, um, I'm going to pray, and then Annie's going to sing, which gives us time to reflect and time to get bread and juice, if that's what you're going to do. And if you're just visiting, you don't, calling to follow Jesus, you don't have to go and get the bread and juice. You can just sit in your seat and, and reflect. But let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we just ask for mercy and an awareness of that mercy. Whether it's an awareness of the mercy that we have received long ago and maybe we just forget. We just want to be grateful and appreciative for what you've done in our lives. But Lord, right now I just really want to pray for anyone in this room who is not sure that they have received mercy. They're not sure that they've encountered you. They're not sure that you've changed them or that you could change them. I just want to ask that they would be able to reach out to you, that they would be able to speak to you, that they would be able to see you and to know your love for them, and that that might change them. You might breathe into them new life. And for us as a church, Lord, that we would be a church that is, that is different, that is radically different because of who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you for the work, for this example of Saul, not an example that we might necessarily need to hear an audible voice from heaven or a bright light or be blinded for three days, but as an example that no one is beyond the reach of your mercy, that anyone can come to you and be saved. We pray that this, this reality and this truth would hit home for us now as we spend time remembering Jesus' death for us through communion, but also as we spend time responding to you in worship and in song. Amen.